Music, science, cosmic culture. This is the Blue Dot Podcast. She's the Manchester-based producer and songwriter whose extensive career has seen her carve out a unique sound that takes in psychedelia, folk and space rock, making her the quintessential Blue Dot artist. After the incredible success of her 2021 album Flock, she returns to Blue Dot this July after her first appearance back in 2017. Welcome to the Blue Dot Podcast with Jane Weaver. Jane, hello and welcome to the Blue Dot Podcast. Hi, how are you? Very well, Jane, thank you. Let's dive straight into the success of your latest album. The response to Flock has been phenomenal. Six Music, Rough Trade and The Guardian all named it one of their albums of the year, as did we. What do you think people love so much about the album? Um, I think it's probably my most accessible album, really, because I did make the concerted effort to you know, just do a, a group of more pop sounding songs together. So maybe that's why, you know, a bit of a bit of a mixed bunch in there, but essentially, you know, I had wanting to write a pop album in my head. Does pop come easily to you? Um, as a pop fan, yeah. I mean, writing a pop song is a little bit more difficult. It, it's a lot easier to write, say, a, a seven minute drone piece that sounds like Hawkwind. And, you know, everybody's just doing their own thing. But when you have a pop song, I guess everything's a bit more on view and and open and people can hear more what you're saying and the changes in everything. And also you've got to be more concise about getting all your information into a certain amount of time. Did you enjoy the process on that basis then? Yeah, I mean, at the time when I I wanted to do this, I wanted to write something like this, I actually felt quite miserable. (laughs) I was going through a personal sort of miserable time and then I was trying to sort of write myself up. So when I was writing it, I was kind of in deep misery sometimes and yet I was trying to be cathartic about it and, you know, just write something to make myself feel better. Um, So it it wasn't easy to begin with, but... um, once I got into the studio and got into the groove of it, but also I'd recorded most of it um, out of lockdown. And then we were kind of at the last third of the album. We had to record in lockdown. So it, that was a bit strange anyway. Is there something weird about doing a pop album and pop being kind of disposable and anything that you've done before, which has been much more conceptual and the love that this album has got? Yeah, I think it was quite a brave move for me to to just go I want to do something really poppy and make that decision and think well maybe people who already like your music will just drop off and you know but I just had that thing in me where I had to just say you know so what (laughs) if people kind of drop off I've just got it in my head that I had to do it I had to go with it. As it is though you've got a whole new fan base. Yeah I mean it's been wonderful at the gigs to more younger people and it's a bit more diverse the crowd as well which was you know it's been nice when we've been we've eventually gone on tour and it's not just I mean I'm not being horrible when I say this but just a load of blokes (laughs) kind of more my age so you know it widened the audience somewhat so that's really nice. Less conceptual as an album but were there still key themes for you underpinning it? Um, I guess it's more personal um, then when, you, when you're doing a conceptual album, I guess you disguise a lot of stuff in metaphor and 
and you can just say what you want but then you can say oh yeah it's about these esoteric themes or whatever and about space or whatever but um i guess this was a bit more on show and a bit more personal you know some of the lyrics and about personal experience and as i said i was you know stuff like Hartlow. It, it, it's a genuine you know feeling down in the dumps but wanting to write a pop song and it's got that kind of bittersweet element about it what were you listening to when you were making the album oh i was listening to a lot of sort of um sort of um american post-punk stuff and then i was listening to a lot of pop stuff glam stuff i was just listening to a whole a whole world of different types of pop music i get i guess not just um 80s pop music but pop music across the board really different styles because i think that's what i wanted to do as well have like like stages of phases like a really glam rock sounding drum beat and then Solarize is kind of a, like a dancey song. So I just thought, I'm just going to do this kind of, um, you know, a big mix of pop sounds production-wise. Me And that was another challenging thing, you know, obviously, um, getting very in my head and going into that production world of those different types of, of genres as well. I feel like it's got elements of disco about it too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like things like Revolution Supervisions, definitely stuff like Prince. You know, that guitar sound, like hot chocolate as well. That guitar sounds actually, um, for the main riff, is is one of the, the pieces of equipment we use is actually hot chocolate's thing, with, unlike you sexy thing and, you know, different stuff, different guitarists they, they are synonymous with. I kind of robbed that. It's <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> what's that noise? Where'd you get it from? You know, part of the, the, the wonderful discovery of production is finding different sounds and how to generate those sounds. What about more contemporary acts, more current acts that you might have been listening to? Because I would make a link between this album, between Flock and what Rasheen Murphy's doing at the moment. Yeah, I mean, Rasheen Murphy is somebody I really admire and she's, you know, she's kind of, she morphs when she does, but essentially she's always still hurt. And uh, she's so, uh, when I watch her, she's like, so energetic on stage. <laughs> she's just bandying about. She, all her, you know, her, her, her style, her, her costume changes. She's just, I think she's, she's amazing. But yeah, definitely her and like gold, you know, golf rap, I guess people have compared certain songs to. Yeah, you're right. So a kind of conscious change of sound then, is that fair? Yeah, I mean, it was um, more to do with one, having a sort of, driven thing about doing it for, for an album I mean there's still stuff that I want to do which doesn't sound like that so the next album I'm not sure what it's going to sound like yet I'm, maybe I'll go a bit more deep into more conceptual stuff um, but I just got kind of tired of doing um, that kind of thing you know we need a concept we need we need to go into this world and I just wanted to do simple pop songs, basically. So I don't, I don't know. The next album I'm quite excited about, and I'm probably going to start writing and recording that this year. So I need to get my act together. <laughs> Easier said than done. In the early days of your career, what was the objective when you were starting out, would you say? Well, when I was in school, for instance, I, I just wanted to be a singer, but I was really painfully shy so I joined like school choir <laughs> and then it was like right the next move is to get a few guitar lessons from the guitar teacher at school and then I went to like sixth form college and I was like right my next move is to form a band so we always had a little a little plan a little seed in the back of my head but even though I was I was doing stuff like art and was going to go to art college 
I kind of ditched that because eventually I, I formed a band and then we got a record deal when we were like 19 or 20. So, so yeah, it, it, and I've kind of been lucky enough to do that, have that on the boil ever since, you know, for a long time now, but still, you know, done um, the, the most ridiculous amount of um, crappy jobs <laughs> that go with that. So I can turn my hand to various things. Was Kill Laura that band that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, the first band was in like Jennifer Fever and then we changed our name to Kill Laura. And uh, we we went, you know, we did a lot of things, went to a lot of places. We had record deals and stuff. And we even got like offered, we went to America in like the early 90s and we got offered like a few deals from these American labels. And I actually like turned them down because we had one offer from Rob Gretton, who was manager of New Order in Manchester and, you know, it was to do with the Hacienda. And I ended up just going, I don't want to go to America. I want to work with Rob Grant, which to me now just sounds like crazy. I don't know why why I thought that. I mean, I really liked him, obviously. And he was really um, engaging and wanted to do a new label. So it sounded really exciting. But I think I was just a bit fearful, really. of I would have had to move to America and possibly start a new life. Tell me about Rob. What was he like to work with? He was just lovely. He was he was always, you know, we were always good pals and he always really looked looked out for me and looked after me. Like he'd even like, you know, scuffle with my manager and say, like, you're not carrying Jane's guitar, you know, stuff like that. He'd always pull people over saying, You're not, you know, be nice to Jane. It was he was always really gentlemanly to me and he included me in, in a lot of things. And because that, you know, moving from Liverpool to Manchester in the nineties and hanging around with all those hacienda mainly dudes who are have been really established and not that they were like the mafia or anything but it was quite intimidating to walk into that scene you know tony wilson rob breton and doves were just starting then and there was a load of other bands as well who who were historically you know part of the the creation of the hacienda and whatever so so it was quite intimidating but i i always felt welcome because he made me feel welcome Tell me more about the working with him. Um, well, he would he would say things like "golden ears," these, you know, and and so if we did we did some demos or some songs like the band, he would just like he he wouldn't say much. He would just sit there quietly and like nod his head, and then he would pick and choose which songs he wants. But I I kind of looked up to him, so I did, you know, I did take his criticism, and I did. Um, he was like a bit of a mentor, really. He had a lot of clout as well and a lot of respect uh, from from people. And I, I sort of admired the fact that he wanted to have this sort of cottage industry in Manchester. You know, he's like, why should you go to London to sign a record deal? You know, it seems preposterous to say that. He's like, but we, we can have our own industry here. And I think that's what he was intent on. And that was his mission. Why should you go outside of the Northwest when you can just do everything here? Tell me about being from Liverpool and infiltrating the Manchester, Madchester scene as it was becoming. Did you feel like an outsider or were you uh, welcomed with open arms? I just felt like, because um, I'm quite a happy, cheery person and, and, and scouts are, you know, and I've lived in Liverpool for a long time and then suddenly moved to Manchester. And I was like, hi, everyone, how is it? And everybody's kind of got a different sense of humour and is a bit more laid back and a bit like cool and yeah. <laughs> you know, so I felt like I was like Jimmy Tarbuck and going into these, so going into the pub with everyone. And I was just like the cheery one in the corner. But I kind of, you know, obviously I've lived in Manchester now 
um, since 1998. So I've got used to that. But there is there is a difference in sort of um, not that anybody's nasty. It's just a different kind of sense of humour. You were part of you mentioned doves. They were just getting big at this time. What did it feel like to be part of that scene? Was it as exciting as retrospectively it would seem looking back on those years? Yeah, I mean, somebody posted a fly the other day and it was um, a gig we did, which was me, Badly Drawn Boy, Doves and Clinic. I think it was at the Boardwalk in Manchester. And things like that, when you look back, it's like, oh my God, that, that's such an amazing experience. And at the time, it did feel really exciting. There were a lot of people there to see Doves and also Damon. I think Damon, Badly Drawn Boy, was on the cusp of, um, there was like an A&R storm for for you know wanting to sign him and he was I think he was on stage for a long time being really cheeky uh, as usual and uh, yeah it was just a really exciting time to see all my friends basically my peers like going becoming successful and watching their journey you know it's amazing what they what they've all achieved yeah where were you knocking about with those guys well, I think with, with like Rob and everyone, it'd be like Atlas. We'd always be at Atlas and then the Delhi and the, the Britain's Protection. <laughs> or, and then with with like Andy, Andy Rotel and like David and everyone, it was like around night and day. Around Old, Oldham Street was the the hub, the Northern Quarter hub. And to be part of that, that you know, that scene there and with Twisted Nerve was very exciting. Everybody I knew was doing stuff, you know. Yeah, and the hit rate, really quite phenomenal. Yeah, it was, um, I mean, at the time, there did seem to be, like, we were in, like, the face and stuff like that. And it's, like, never, you know, there was, like, the, it was, like, the new thing, like, Twisted Nerve and Damon and everything. And, and my husband, Andy, was always like, oh, me and Damon have got to do a photo shoot. We've got to do an interview. And it was just really rapid. You know, everything was happening really fast. And when did you marry Andy? Married Andy in 2003. That was as a result of, I guess, being part of the scene. And then had he worked with you by this time? So, yeah, we, we first met because my manager was also working with him at the time. So this was kind of, maybe we met kind of before 98, definitely before 98. And uh, we started working with each other and did some songs together, which ended up on one of Andy's albums. Yeah, we just started working together and that was it. And then we just... I moved over there we started socializing more obviously because i didn't know that many people how is it for your kids living with two absolute music heads um i don't know i think kids they just don't they they don't really say anything you know they like the perks they like they like saying to me are we gonna get into blue dot or we're gonna go to this festival or that festival and they have been when especially when they've been little they've been to a lot of festivals you know with us because we couldn't really leave them at home and uh, but like when their school friends say i i saw your mum or heard your mum's music on the radio i think they're quite kind of proud they're us and they but they they don't flinch much you know what teenagers are like they're not that bothered i wonder how they are about seeing you on stage because you've experimented a lot with different formats of live performance how have things changed for you as a creator since you started writing producing and performing I think I, I never used to use as much technology as we do now. Like we definitely use more sort of backing tracks and stuff like that. And 
when we started out and when we were just you know in a band it was just oh I, I, whenever I was on stage I could never hear properly you know it was always really loud guitars and I think that the style of the music's changed but also the way you can produce stuff on stage has changed which works for me you know having stuff like in-ear monitors which most people have these days just so you can hear what you're singing because it used to be oh god it, back in the day it's just like constantly shouting to to, to project your voice and you know, not knowing if you're in tune or not, you know. So I think that, you know, things have definitely improved. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't want it to sound exactly like the record. I like it when it sounds like the record, but not exactly. You know, you go and see some shows and it's just like, that is exactly like the record. You know, you need to have a bit of room for experimentation, a bit of room for people to do their own stuff. Do you like being on stage? Do you like performing? I definitely do now. Yeah, I find, I've I've found a real joy in it having the, the the band that I've got now, and also when I've done solo stuff in the past, I used to hate it because I used to feel really intimidated and you know the pressure was on. And now, it's it's a joy, and also I do I do love being in a band. I've been in a band since I was like sixteen, and I I love the. I love all all the bits about it. I never tire of it, you know. Even like rehearsing, all the stuff you have to do that's boring, the travelling. Um, I kind of really enjoy that part. I love the the bands. I love hanging around with the band, having a drink after the show, and you know, being stupid and all that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a perk of the job, isn't it? How was Abbey Road? You've just been down there in London doing a project with Dan Carey. Tell me about that. Well, it was just a while ago, I was, I was asked by Abbey Road um, to come in and have a look round. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'd never been into Abbey Road before. And uh, Mark, the guy that works there, said, just come in, you know, and see. Because I think they want to make it appear to be more accessible for, for musicians. It's not just for people who've got, like, low, you know, big, expensive record deals. But they want to open the doors so that most people can use it, which is a really good thing. Because I never thought I'd ever, ever get in the doors there, just beyond my reach. So, so yeah, so I had that introduction. And then they were doing a lock-in series when we were all in lockdown. And they said, you want to come in and do some recording? You can have whoever, you know, whatever guests you want. And I thought, I know who wants to work with. So I got, I'd already slightly been, me and Dan had already slightly been in touch with each other, but he was, um, are you available to go into, we were going to go into Studio 3, not Studio 2, but I actually wanted to go into Studio 3 because that's where Pink Floyd more recorded. So, um, so yeah, and that's how it happened. We just got the conversation going and then we went in and uh, we did a bit of prep at Dan's studio, like a couple of hours the day before and then we went into Abbey Road and we, we we hadn't written anything really we had to just throw ourselves into it and uh, do a song together within 24 hours having never worked with each other which is a bit scary but we did you know we both of us didn't have much time so we just had to do it. Dan being Dan Carey like uber incredible producer everything he touches turns to gold it seems. Yeah I well I've been admiring him for years it's that everything I listen to, I think, oh, who, who's that behind that? And I'm just like, ah, oh, it's got Dan's name on it. So I was keen to go into his studio because he's got a lot of weird and wonderful equipment that he's he's collected over the years. I've seen slight pictures of it, and then when I was there, I was like, just going, what's this? What's that? It's really, really nerding, nerding out. And um, he actually bought some of his 
home equipment to Abbey Road as well, which was nice because we had all the amazing stuff at Abbey Road, also dance gear there. So yeah, it was it was like an amazing experience and one off my bucket list because as I say I'd never thought I'd be able to get in to get in there and and do stuff, you know. How do you think the history of Abbey Road might have informed what you did there? Um, I think it definitely helped. And it, it was good that I went in, in there just for just to look around because I didn't feel, you know, some places you go to, you may feel a bit in, intimidated and like it's a bit like, oh, it's not going to work creatively here because it's the actual, um, the building is more important than what you do. But I, I kind of, I felt comfortable when I went in there. I thought, yeah, I can definitely feel like this is a, a, a room I can work with and and it doesn't feel like I won't be able to be creative in here the people there like who who mix it and the staff are really down to earth and warm it wasn't stuffy at all even though it's like the, the the world's most famous studio it's it's not unapproachable so after that meeting I was like yep you know book me in I'll come in and I definitely you know I'd love to go back there as well you know I intend to go back there a big fantasy is what you've put out with Dan you talked about how it was to work with Rob. What about Dan? Well, yeah, I mean, Dan, we'd only exchanged emails. So the first time we met was the day before we went to Abbey Road. Well, we met in person. And again, really affable and just really comfortable to work with. I think you kind of know, you know, sometimes you can, you kind of just know it's going to be fine. And um yeah, and everything he brought to the table, because I don't normally work with producers as such, I produce everything myself. So, you know, from from inception to, to delivery. So it was quite nice to hand um, a lot of that over to Dan and just say, look, you do your thing because I totally trust him and then I'll do what I can and then <laughs> you you handle it. And, 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 you know, so we collaborated and that's another thing I don't normally collaborate with with people and writing stuff so it was just it was easy you know it was good do you think it's hard even intimidating for producers that you work with knowing that you're so hands-on and self-produced very often a lot of the time in fact and of course with Andy's influence I, I, I have no idea I mean I I'm just quite happy when I go into a situation. I mean, we've worked with like David Holmes before. He he produced a couple of tracks on um, my album, The Silver Globe, and I, and I went over to America to work with him. And again, I was I was quite happy to go in there and just say, you from from get go, you know, you you do it. I'll just do what you want me to do. But I think you've got to have that. You can't you can't have like a clash. You can't have like well. I need to say what I've got to say and that it, it doesn't work. You've got to have some kind of like, well, I want you to do your job and I'll do my bit here, you know. Before I ask you about Blue Dot, you're surrounded by looks like vinyl all around you. <laughs> I think it'd be great to know just some of what's on the shelves. Would you mind just picking out a couple of albums there and just Oh, right, okay. I'll have a look. Got? I can't guarantee how good or bad it all is. Well, that would be interesting. <laughs> Oh, this is quite an interesting one, actually, because um, I was listening to something on the internet recently and I said to my husband, it's this really weird Georgian sort of sort of chant music. And then my husband went, oh, I know what that is. It's from um, a film because he's like that. He's got immediate knowledge of where the music comes from. So he bought me this, which is an amazing album. It's a Georgian. It's like a choraled 
male vocal album. That's really good. That would be um, the sort of thing Andy would play in a Friday night DJ set. Possibly as a wall. <laughs> and I've got, oh yeah, this is a good one. So this, these are records that have been out to DJ some of these. So this is a Babe Ruth, you know that one. Yep, That's Babe Ruth, first bass. King Kong. King Kong is the, the track you put on when you are DJing and you need a toilet break because it's <laughs> seven minutes long. Um, Kim Wilde, Kids in America. You see, these are DJ classics. Visage, Fade to Grey. Oh, this is a good one. Prince, Bambi. It's always a good track to play. Oh, yeah, so we were watching something the other day and... Again, Andy just went and bought it for me. So it was um, a cover of Lennon and McCartney, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away by The Silky. That's a really good song. That's a really nice version. How does that sound then? It's like more like a thing. Well, yeah, it's acoustic guitar. It's like a, a band. It's a female. There's, there's a woman in it. I think it's female vocal as well. Yeah, it's good. So, yeah, there's a few. A mixed bag. I think that's what you call eclectic, isn't it? <laughs> Well, I don't, there's nothing really that cosmic in there because I just I, I, it wasn't on the cosmic shelf. But you know that's <laughs> on the pile I need to play anyway. The Weaver Hotel cosmic shelf. <laughs> he has to have his records separate from mine because he has so many that if mine get lost into the abyss, I, I can't find anything. They never come back. We're so excited about having you back at Blue Dot this year, Jane. You joined us for the first time back in 2017. What do you remember about that weekend? Oh, well, we were on the, the same stage as the Pixies and uh, that was quite exciting being being a Pixies fan and then, you know, seeing Black Francis walk round backstage and, and it was just, oh, it was just great. Yeah, it was really exciting to be to be on, on the big stage, you know, at Jodrell Bank. And I do love Blue Dot because it's, it's quite small, it's quite contained. So it's it's not like some festivals where you, you have to really plan to go to the next stage or you want to see stuff. And we saw st- I think we saw Snapped Ankles, you know, band, bands like that as well. And yeah, it was, it was a great weekend. And what can we expect from your time at Blue Dot this year? Well, normally when we do like a festival set, we just try and pull out the bangers, really. We don't do anything too too um you know strange we just like to do the more up-tempo ones because it, it especially like if you're on in the in the daytime you know you just want to just get in there and do the, the 40 minutes or whatever of, of, of pop songs so I guess that's what we'll do your space thing though so perfect under the telescope yeah I mean it's definitely me that kind of uh, cosmology thing you know discovering about the universe it's amazing I mean I do love going when I drive past like Jodrell Bank and I'm just like it's just so immense it's so impressive the telescope it's um it, it I think it's such a good place to do a festival as well I drive past it quite often and every time I'm just it's awe inspiring I can't believe what it's doing yeah I know and I can't believe that it, it kind of moves doesn't it and then and then I've seen like interviews of like I think Graham Massey from 808 State, he's been inside it. He's like done an interview inside it. And I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to go inside, inside <laughs> the telescope. All right. Noted, Jane's rider. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go in there. Exactly. Jane, thanks so much. I think you're awesome. I love Flock <laughs> and can't wait for what's next. Thank you very much. Thanks. Nice to talk to you. See you at Blue Dot in July. Definitely. You've been listening to the Blue Dot Podcast. 
visit discovertheblue.com to enjoy more episodes of the Blue Dot podcast and explore the lineup. Blue Dot returns to Cheshire's iconic Jodrell Bank this July with tickets on sale now. Listener.